Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. stand with us this morning as we bring our attention to our call to worship. It's found in Psalms 96, and here the psalmist writes, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Father, we just thank you for such a beautiful morning. We thank you for the opportunity to come and just to come together as one body to not only submit to your lordship and pronounce that you are king, but to give of ourselves in all things. Lord, I pray that we would just be cheerful givers as you're a cheerful, generous giver. Thank you for the opportunity to do so, and I pray that you would just join with us. And Lord, as the earth is filled with your glory, let's be filled here within our hearts, Lord, as we submit to you. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. So I'm just going to ask if you would bow your head and close your eyes and join silent with me as I just pray for us this morning. Your Father in heaven, come to bow down and worship you. We join with the psalmist in crying out, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made us a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you've crowned us with glory and honor. You have given dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, speaking not only of man, but also of the son of man, Jesus Christ, O Lord our Lord. How majestic is your name in all of the earth we cry. Together we lift up the name of Jesus, the name above all names, the name in which salvation comes. You are our high priest. and We ask that you pray for us, pray for us as you prayed for your disciples. Pray that we not be shifted as wheat. Pray for strength and courage to live lives that glorify the Father. In spirit we pray that you would carry our prayers to the Son. Strengthen us this morning, empower us, sanctify us with your holy word. Move freely among us this morning and let the will of the Father be done as we serve each other with the gifts that you have graciously given to us that we may build up the body this morning. And Father, we want to remember those who are not here this morning due to sickness. And we lift up those who due to sickness or weakness are not able to join us. May our hearts not forget our brothers and sisters in Christ, but let us remember them in our prayers and our deeds. We pray this in the name of the Son. And all of God's people said, Amen. May I ask you to take your Bibles and join with us in James chapter 2. Wayne Grubman writes in his Systematic Theology that saving faith is a trust in Jesus Christ as a living person for forgiveness of sin and for eternal life with God. Amen? Today, the title of my message is The Proof of Saving Faith. You have heard me define saving faith as a confident transfer of trust from ourselves 
to the works of Christ. Understanding that we are by nature a child of disobedience, guilty of rebellion against God, deserving of God's full wrath and of the penalty of death, knowing that to be the case, we recognize that there is nothing, nothing that we can do to make ourselves right with God and that there's nothing in our own works or devotion to commend ourselves towards God. That's what Scripture tells us. And because of that, we repent of all human efforts to appease God's wrath. We therefore put our trust that God the Father accepts the perfect obedience of His Son, Jesus Christ, in not only paying the penalty of sin on our behalf, but also that He has imputed to us the very righteousness, perfectness of Christ, and we are now considered children and friends of God. That is the gospel in the nutshell. And you and I, we've talked about this over the last few years, that we are to cling to that gospel as our only hope. It is that gospel that we hold dear and share freely with others. We join with Paul as he testified that I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, and that he knew and preached nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's where we stand, and that's where we have our hope. Amen? We fight and resist any temptation to water down and reject all counterfeit gospels that many pastors and churches propagate for their own sinful purposes, including the teaching that all one needs to do to be saved is to repeat a simple prayer that all one has to do is believe that Jesus was born and that He saves. That all one has to do is to have an intellectual belief in the facts of Jesus. No, saving faith goes further. As Jesus said in Luke's Gospel, that if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Those are not my words, but that of Christ. You see, saving faith involves forsaking all to follow Him. Unfortunately, this difficult, tough teaching has fallen by the wayside as many have adopted a gospel that requires nothing but a verbal affirmation in Jesus. Too many have accepted the false notion that one can repeat a simple prayer and then proceed to live their lives on their own terms without any regard for obedience to biblical commands and principles. That's my soapbox for today. But this is the topic that you and I are going to find James addressing in our passage today that Dustin read earlier. In James chapter 1, verse 18, Paul reminds us that of God's own will... 
God has brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be the first fruit of his creation, of his creatures. And because of that, we are commanded in James 21, if you're just following along real quickly, to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness that implanted word. You see, God does have a plan for our lives, and that's to make us like his son. We are to be conformed to the image of his son. In James 1.22, he admonishes us to be doers of that implanted word and not hearers only, since true, genuine believers will follow through on their profession of faith, as he wrote in chapter 1, verses 25 through 27, that the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, it says, he will be blessed in his doing. We have summed up by understanding that those who profess Christ must follow through by loving God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their strength, and all their mind, and also love their neighbor as themselves. Father, we come before you this morning, and as we again open up James chapter 2, we pray that you would speak to us. Lord, let us recognize that the only truth that comes is comes from your word. And Father, let us be able to differentiate between your word and any opinion that is human-based. Father, I pray that you would do your work. Let not the spirit be quenched. Let me speak words that are building up, that are edifying. Do the work that you've accomplished today, and may we respond faithfully to your word. We pray this in the name of your Son, who makes it possible for us to receive your word with gladness and with joy, we pray. Amen. Imagine, if you will, a fictional conversation between James and two church attendees who profess Christ but disagree on the relationship between faith and works. And that, if you were to do that, that's what you would find yourself in James chapter 2, 14 through 26. And in it, there's James, and there's probably one or two different people. And James makes a bold statement. And you'll see that as you look at verse 14, where James, he declares that faith without works cannot save. Look what he writes to them. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? And he asks a statement that requires an answer of no. Can that faith save him? The answer is no. James is making a very strong stand here to those Jews that are dispersed among the world. He says that faith without works cannot save. Building on the premise that Christians are to fulfill the royal law, that law of liberty, James once again speaks to the importance of of follow through. And you've heard me say that word quite a bit. It's not enough to have faith in the works of Christ, but you and I ourselves, we're called to do works. As Paul writes in Ephesians, he says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here, you need to catch this as we go on. Though we are not saved by good works, we are saved for 
good works. The difference between some prepositions there. We are not saved through or by good works, but we are saved for good works. And let me tell you, this debate continues even today. And so as we reach back and look back 2,000 years ago at this, this conversation that's happening in the ancient first century church, you and I could imagine several of us standing there by the coffee machine in the back having the same debate. James is going to give them three points to consider, really two, and then he makes a conclusion. We'll call it three points. It's really two with a conclusion. The first point that he's going to make here as we follow along in verse 15 and 17 is that faith by itself, if not accompanied by actions, he says is dead. Let's look at verse 15. For he says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is it? What's the answer that's demanded? None. It's none. So also, he says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, finish it off with me, is what? Dead. Faith by itself is dead if there's nothing behind him. Brothers and sisters here is speaking of Christ's command to take care of each other. In Jesus' teaching, he had pointed out how the Father graciously provides the needs of his children, you might remember in the Gospels, and that the mark of a genuine Christian is their love for each other. That was the mark. He says, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another, which means meeting the physical and emotional and spiritual needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. In verse 16, James is pointing out the hypocritical practice of responding piously to a need without compassion and love. Could you even see the irony that's dripping as he says, go in peace, be warmed and filled. What good is that? There's some modern examples that we use. Like Jesus, James detests using religious cover for the failure to act. We do such things like that today when we say, well, you know what? Oh, you're, you're struggling with your mortgage? Oh, you're, you're struggling with uh, getting gas? Oh, you don't know. I'll, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. And when we walk off. We use words like, well, all things work together for good. You know, Scripture, right? Or I'll keep you in my prayers. Or just keep trusting God. These are all religious, pious words that have no meaning behind them. It's smoke and mirrors. Christian slogans that mean nothing. It's that type of sentiment that is as dead as the paper fish you stick on the back of the car bumper. It means nothing. Honk if you love Jesus as you're flipping everybody off down the freeway. Just stop doing that. As I've said before, don't go to a, a restaurant and give them a track if you're going to stiff them on the tip. In other words, you understand what I'm saying here? And we all know that we've done it. That's why I would challenge you here. This is extra. You don't have to pay for this. But if someone comes to you, you say, how's your day? First, by the way, quit saying things are great when they're not. 
This is God's house. God knows you're lying. Don't be in an Ananias and Sapphira and lie in the house of God or lie to another saint. If you're struggling in life, if you're struggling with something, hey, take a brother and sister and say, man, things are not well. And there's nothing wrong with saying, I'll pray for you. But instead of going off and never pray for them, take them by the hand or the shoulder and say, let's go over here and pray for them now. And then help them on their journey with something, with a word of advice. Point them to the help they need. Bring them to the deacons for the deacons fund. Or let's say, well, what can we do to help solve this problem? We walk away with all these religious, pious sayings, thinking that we've accomplished something for God, and the Bible says you're just dead. Jesus asks, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent? What does it say? No, none of us would. So why should we act that way towards our brothers and sisters in Christ? And I think the problem is that you have not considered the person sitting next to you as a brother and sister. You consider them just as people. But let me tell you, we are a community that is covenant together. And your pain is my pain. Roman tells us, weep with those who weep. And finish this off, you know this. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Your faith is dead. If you see a brother and sister in need, now, again, there's qualifiers there. He's not telling that you have to feed every homeless person or every need that's out there. He's not calling for a social redistribution of wealth. That's not what we're seeing here. But he's saying a brother or sister is in need, a person in your church, and they're in need. Do not let them go empty-handed. And let me tell you, there are some of you here, and some of you I know, and mother, probably more I don't, you are in need, and you have not yet shared. Shame on you. Don't let your pride get in the way of allowing us to put our faith into action. For there are probably many of you here that could help someone and you're frustrated because the people in the church will not even allow you to help. It should not be so. Amen? Faith without works is dead. But in 1819... Someone says, objection. Wait a second, James. You got it wrong. Let's look at it. Here's an objection. Someone cries out in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James' fictional debater there will try and separate faith and works by claiming that one doesn't have anything to do with the other. But you'll look at James' replies. James says, well, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, and you do well, claiming the Shema, the Lord is one. But even the demons believe and shudder. You see, faith is more than an intellectual assent to the facts or an orthodox grasp of doctrine. You see, the devil and his minions have intellectual faith. They know about God, and they know about his word, and they have experienced his very presence. But let me tell you, they still reject him in rebellion. Yet they still have a very real fear of God. James accuses this professing Christian who says, 
well, wait a second, works and, and faith have nothing to do. He, he comes to this Christian and he accuses them of a lack of true knowledge of God. As the scripture teaches, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. This man here, this self-professed Christian, shows himself to be a fool. For he may have orthodox teaching, but yet he doesn't put any of it into practice. James here is not arguing that works must be added to faith, but that genuine saving faith will be characterized by obedience to God's word. Let me say it again. He's not arguing here that works must be added to faith, but he's saying that genuine saving faith will be characterized by obedience to God's word. You see, the gospel is not just about information, but what? Transformation. And I believe that there are some self-professing Christians in churches today, including this one, who believe that they are saved, but yet their actions, their deeds, and their hearts are false. And those are hard words. But that's the challenge because James loves his people. And he doesn't want to see anyone be fooled by their own foolish heart. And in the same way, I have to say the same words as this is what you need to understand. For the Bible says that one day we will all stand before God and give accounts of what we've done. And so I don't want you to stand and hear those words depart from me. But he says, your works here are dead if your faith is not shown by your works. So he says, not only is your faith by itself dead, but he goes on in verse 20 after this cry of objection to say that faith without deeds is actually useless. Not only is it dead, but it has no bearing on a person's life. Look at verse 20. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So he has to say, listen here, you're objecting to it. You think that they're separable. You think that one doesn't have to do it. Do I need to show it? Do I need to illustrate it? And thank God that he does. For he goes on in verse 21 to give them an example that they could not argue with. For he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was what? Completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called what? A friend of God. Look at verse 24 with me. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Paul is using that phrase, you see, in verses 22 and 24, to point out how faith and works prove the genuineness, the truth, the reality of saving faith. James uses Genesis chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, you can turn back there real quickly. In James chapter 15, he quotes verse 1 through 6. The way he doesn't quote them, but he's referring to them. Where Abraham... 
some years after finally moving to the promised land, where it's recorded after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. And he brought him outside and said, Abraham, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Now last summer we looked at this passage of scripture. And obviously you and I know that we cannot number the stars. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. What a wonderful promise. And he believed the Lord, speaking of Abram, and it was counted to him as righteousness. God gave a promise and he believed it. And God says, you're righteous. He had faith. Faith alone brought him saving faith. Now there, all he did was believe. But what he's doing, he's going to bring now in Genesis chapter 22. If you want to go to there in Genesis 22, you know the story of Isaac. This is probably 25, 26 years after chapter 15. Genesis 22, where Moses writes that after the birth of Isaac, the son of the promise, that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And Abraham had said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Now as he connects those two scenes, 20 plus years apart, He's talking about the follow-through with God's command to sacrifice his son. In following through with that, Abraham proved the genuineness of his faith and trust in Christ. As the writer of Hebrew writes, that Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac because he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Why did he believe that God would raise him from the dead? Because 20-something plus years ago, as recorded in Genesis 15, God says, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars. This is my promise. His faith found, found here, it was proven genuine 20 plus years later. One proved the other. It was the outworking of his faith through his deeds. He also uses the example of Rahab the prostitute, who hearing of the mighty works of God in protecting and leading the children of Israel, disregarded her own safety and her own people and trusted in God's providence in treating Israel kindly. You see, if our profession of faith does not lead you and I to boldly obey God's word in defiance of circumstances and consequences, then our belief is useless. And to be honest, you're wasting your time here. Can I say that again? Because I didn't get anything out of that. If our profession of faith does not lead us to, to boldly obey God's word in defiance of circumstances and consequences, then our belief is useless. That's what James is saying here. James is warning his people, do not be useless. Do not be something that's just tossed aside and forgotten. And I would share the same concern in the words of James. Do not be considered useless, friends. It's not what he's called you to. 
I get the modern example of Miriam Ibrahim. She's that Sudan, Sudan woman just released from prison, yet still facing death and persecution from her own family, her brother seeking to murder her for her refusal to deny Christ. She's putting her faith into action. Or lest we forget Pastor Saeed Abdenini, who's still wasting away in an Iranian prison for standing firm in his faith and profession of faith. And we could go on with countless others of those who profess Christ and then prove the genuineness of their faith by going to the stake, by being mauled by the lions, by being ridiculed and cast out from their family, being martyred to death. Let me ask you, how are you proving your faith? Are you standing up, I believe Christ, I've been saved? Let me ask you, have your deeds, has your life, does it show itself? Can I see your calendar, your time date? Let me see how you're spending your time. Does that show the genuineness of your faith? Let me see your checkbook. If Christ were to go through that, would that prove the genuineness of your faith? Because you're cheerfully and generously giving to advance God's kingdom and not your own? How about your time in spending and sharing with others through the gospel? William Carey, I'm reading his biography. That is so good. I'm going to put it back there so other people can read it. He says, expect great things from God, attempt great things from God. That's where that phrase comes from. We've made it something that you just now put on a poster and put it in a corporate building or some type of motivational speaking. But that speaks about sharing the gospel and winning what he would call the heathen for Christ. I can't read that book without getting all juiced up. I used it as a little bit of, a, of encouragement last night, and that's the part I read. I'm thinking, he's putting his faith to works. And in it, he lost his wife and lost so much. If we were to test the genuineness of your faith, what would it come out to this morning? Again, faith, number three. I'm sorry, let me go on. And number three, he begins the conclusion again, faith without deeds is dead. Verse 26, he says, For as the body apart from the spirit is also dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James now points to the simple truth that just as a body is dead without a spirit, so is faith without works. Simple faith cannot be denied, or the simple truth cannot be denied, is that faith must be followed through with works. A Christian who professes faith in Christ without follow through and obedience to God's word is spiritually dead. His faith is not genuine. He is still dead in his trespasses and sin as in, and is without hope. Please, if you hear my voice, do not be as one of those. If not, turn and repent and call upon him. Begin to count the cost and follow him. So he says, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is useless. And he answers the objections and gives some illustrations to prove the point is that faith without it is dead. Now let me give you some notes of clarification. Let me help you understand here because we need to understand exactly what he's talking about here. 
Works and deeds, when he says works, when he says actions, when he says deeds, different translations give them different words. The works and deeds in this passage refer to actions done in obedience to God, uh, obedience to God's word that is motivated by our love for God and our desire to fulfill our destiny. Take your Bible, if you would, and turn to Titus. Titus chapter 2. You need to underline this in your Bible, highlight it. I'd recommend you memorize it. This is one of the very first verses that I remember memorizing. Titus chapter 2. Words and deeds is actions done in obedience to God that is motivated by a love for Him and our desire to fulfill our destiny. Look at Titus chapter 2. Look at verse 11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Amen? Now look at that next word. What's that next word? Training us to renounce. There's a few things to do. To renounce ungodly and worldly passions. That's the first thing. And to, number two, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly in this present age. Those are two things that you need to see right away. We're going to renounce. We're to live in the way that God calls us. And the third thing, waiting for that blessed hope for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And then listen to this. We got that. Because that's usually what you and I want. We want our get-out-of-hell-free card. We want fire insurance. I just don't want to burn for eternity. But not only that, but to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's a true, genuine Christian. How zealous are you for good works? Have you trained yourself to renounce, to live, and to wait? Why? Because he's purified, or he's redeemed us, but now he's purifying us for the works that he's created for us to do. Again, it's not that we're saved by good works, but we are saved for good works, to obey God's word as we're motivated by his love. Let me give you another note of clarification because I want to put to any rest any perceived conflict with the teachings of James. I want you to see these two passages of scriptures. For this is where we struggle. Paul is writing, he says, we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. What he's saying there is you cannot do good works and find salvation. But then James says, we're justified by works and not by faith alone. So here we come to the 2,000 year debate. Oh, these two guys are clashing together. So which one is it? And this is why we did Galatians earlier this year, and we are now in James. I wanted you to see both sides of that. For we spent some time in Galatians speaking of faith alone. That's the gospel that I gave you in my opening statement. But now we've shared with you, James says, wait a second, let's get a little bit of feedback here. You see, the key word for both of them is to identify or define how they use the word justify. You see, when he says, Paul, justified by faith, Paul is using the word justify, which means to make right. He's using that in regards to the initial declaration of a sinner's innocence pronounced by God. 
You see, when we say that we trust in the works of Christ for our obedience, God says, I declare you innocent. You are not guilty. He's referring to a faith that comes from regeneration when we are born again as given by the Holy Spirit. So he's talking about that initial time where we say, I'm trusting in the works of Christ. Now James, though, is using the word justify to speak of the ultimate verdict of innocence that's pronounced over a person at last judgment. See, he's referring to a faith that is shallow and me-centered without the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. So when James says, we need to wait, there is still a judgment, he's speaking of that Bema seat or that great white throne in which we stand before God and he's going to say yes or no. Enter, depart. So salvation is you are declared here yes, but now prove that your faith is true. Because to be honest, we have made faith simple. Just say this prayer, Lord Jesus I'm a sinner, please forgive me, come into my heart. A, B, C, and D. Admit that you're a believer, believe in Jesus Christ, and confess your sin. Not a bad prayer, but that's all we've made it. And then you can live your life any old way that you want, and then you're okay. Once saved, you know the phrase. But there's some pushback, because the Bible's saying, no, that's not true. That phrase, we ought, to, we ought to bury that deep, deep, deep. It's speaking of a truth, but it's speaking of a truth, and it's twisting it for personal gain. But the Bible says, should we sin, continue to sin, that grace may abound? What does it say? God forbid. And so you and I need to understand that one day we will stand before God, and God is going to say, did you prove out your works? You say, Rob, that, that makes no sense. You see, since James is one of the early books of the New Testament, we're not even sure if Paul was even going at this time or how much of Paul's teaching. But most likely what James is really referring here to is the teachings of Jesus. And take your Bible and take to Matthew 25, and I'll finish this as quick as possible. But in Matthew 25, you and I need to see where James is coming from. James chapter 25. Look at chapter 25, verse 31. Jesus is speaking about what heaven is like, about the end times. And in verse 31, Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will set on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, and the goats on his left. Matthew was speaking about this earlier. It's the last day. It's the judgment. In verse 34, then the king will say to him on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Remember in James where he said, If you obey, you'll be blessed in your doing. He says, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick. And you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. In verse 37, the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we do these things? I don't remember this. When did I feed you? When did I go visit you? When were you here? And the king will answer them in verse 40. Truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these my brothers, 
you did it unto me. But now let's look at those are the good. Blessed is he in his doing. But look at verse 41. Then he will say to the left, the goats, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 42, I'm going to go quick. I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. And they also will ask the question, when did we ever do that or not do that? When were you here? When was that even a possibility? Verse 45, then he will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous shall have eternal life. Again, we think it's works related, but no. He's saying your faith must be proved genuine by your works. What he's saying, those who are truly Christ will love, will give mercy, will meet the needs of those. Why? Because that's who God is. We're being made into the image of His Son. You and I must understand that our works, our obedience to the commands of Scripture, validate our faith. Can you get that? We must understand our works, our obedience to the commands of Scripture, validate our faith. For someone who comes to me and says, you know what, I'm struggling with loving my husband, I can't submit to him, I can't love my wife. My first question isn't to them, what are they doing wrong? My first question is, are you born again? Do you know Christ? Because if you don't know Christ, how can you do any of those things? If you're struggling with addiction and you come to me and say, Rob, I'm struggling with this. Oh, I'm struggling with my parents. My first question is going to be, what's the problem? The first question is going to be, well, do you know Christ? For only there can the fountain then be filled and worked out. D.L. Moody, who was a famous pastor and evangelist in the turn of the century, many of you know D.L. Moody or have heard of him. He writes that a man ought to live, listen to this, a man ought to live so that everybody knows he is a Christian. And most of all, his family ought to know. Let me ask you, does your husband, does your wife, do your children, does your employers, your co-workers, do your neighbors, do the person who does bags your grocery that you know and say hi to you all the time, does your favorite waitress or waiter at the restaurant do they know that you're a Christian? Would they be surprised if you said, hey, I go to church? Does your faith match up to your faith? Mine did not for a period of time. And I've shared with you that story, that there are many that if I were to go to now and try to pronounce Christ to them, they would laugh at me. I would be as Lot was to those of Sodom and Gomorrah. So let me ask you, do your drinking buddies know that you're a Christian? How about that person that you speak bad about your wife? Would those on your social page be surprised that you actually go to church and really mean it? Would the person looking at your cable bill and see what you watch on TV or look at your internet cash, would they be surprised that you have a profession of faith? One last word of encouragement, though, is found in our bulletin. If you open that up, and in the Fresh Fire section, we may cry out and say, Rob, I try to do good works, but even my good works 
fail. I try to help people, but I don't always do it. I try to love and do it. Let me tell you, I was doing this message yesterday, and I got, you know what? It's time for a break and time for a lunch break. So I get in my car, and as I drive out, I see some kids playing on our grass, and it's just dying from them playing on it. And I said, kids, get out of there. You can't play there. Well, I did that nicely, but then they weren't getting off as fast, so I got out of my car, and I gave them that look. And then I pull out here, and no one knows how to drive at this intersection. And so there's two people coming out of Target, and there's people. And so I get to go, and some lady comes straight. She doesn't even, I was first. And then the guy behind her doesn't even do a rolling stop. He just goes, and I go, and he almost hits me. I hope they didn't realize I was coming out of the church, because I definitely was not proving the genuineness of my love. We fail at that. Okay, there's times that we're going to struggle. Let me give you a word of encouragement from Thomas Watson, where he says, we're in our personal obedience comes short. Because there are going to be times that our personal obedience to God's word, motivated by love, will come short. We don't always love as deeply. We don't always care as much. And our compassion falls short. God will be pleased to accept us in our surety, in our salvation. He hath made us accepted in the beloved, Scripture tells us in Ephesians. Though our obedience be what? Imperfect, yet through Christ our surety, God looks upon it as perfect. So God isn't asking you to do perfect works. God is calling you to trust Him and follow through. For faith without works is dead and useless. Do not be as that. Father, we pray for strength to do so. Father, we struggle in this many ways. I pray that there may not be anyone here today whose profession of faith is ingenuine. If so, let them see their need for a Savior. Let them come and call and bow down and repent of their sin and turn and just come and pick up their cross and follow you with all their heart. Let those of us, Lord, who are struggling in perfect obedience recognize that, Lord, we are just to love imperfectly as we become more like you. And Father, we thank you for the grace of the table that will come down soon. Lord, that in all ways, Lord, you make us accepted in our Father. We thank you for this in your name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.